Could I have your attention, please? Welcome back. For those of you who are here for the fourth time, how many still have perfect attendance? Can I see those hands? Wow. All right. You're 40% of the way there. You don't want to miss graduation. I mean, some of you have never graduated from anything, and here is your opportunity to graduate. And we, how many, any first-timers here tonight? I know we got a group from Ruston, Louisiana, all the way from Ruston to be here. Wow. Anybody from Kennebra? No Kennebras? No Kenners? Nobody want to admit it? They're from Ken. Hey, tonight we have yet another gift for you. Um, the Case for Easter, a, a wonderful little book written by Lee Strobel, uh, atheist. Uh, of course, he went to the University of Missouri, and I love that because, you know, what's, what's, Missouri is the what state? The show me state. So he went to the University of Missouri. Then he went to Yale where he got a, a master's in legal studies. Uh, moved to Chicago where he became the chief legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. Uh, his wife became a Jesus follower. And it, it just, it messed him up. And he went on a worldwide journalistic investigation as to whether or not this Jesus even lived, died, or was resurrected. And at the end of that exhaustive and must have been pretty expensive uh, journey, uh, he became a follower of Jesus himself and has written multitudes of books. As a matter of fact, this is not a cheap plug for the movie, but there's a movie out, came out last Friday called The Case for Christ. And it's not a documentary. It actually is a dramatization of Lee Strobel's life. And I've seen the trailer. A couple of y'all have seen it and have given it thumbs up. And I want to uh, encourage you to, to take the time to, to go and see that. So anyway... Now, I also want to tell you real quick, uh, too, that May 19th and 20th, I know that's a way from here, ways from now, but it'll be here before we know it. A part of the Alpha course is the Alpha weekend. And so on Friday night, May 19th, and Saturday morning, May 20th, as a part of a class, we will continue the class. It's going to give us an opportunity to get in uh, two more classes, uh, two more course, uh, two more sessions to study through. And so we would love for you to be a part of that May 19th dinner just like on, on a Tuesday night. Uh, the only difference is, there's, as of now, there's no health care. Health care. Huh. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Now, the, the funny thing of that is that this is the time of year with my company that it's the month before we kick into a new health care thing, and so I apologize. So if you have children, you need health care. But on that Friday night... On, that fr on Friday night, we will not have childcare, and I'm sorry about that. So it's Friday night, May 19th, my bride's birthday, so please, all of you be here to celebrate. Um, and then Saturday morning, it's only Saturday morning, May 20th, we've got, a, we've got a, a breakfast bar that is unbelievable. It's like Shoney's, you know, on steroids is what it's like here, uh, the breakfast that Pete puts together for us. So I want to encourage you about that. Tonight we're... Uh, we're on page 24 of our, our manual. How can we have faith? I, I, I don't, everyone, everyone that's heard me say this, I'm not a big fan of this title, How Can We Have Faith? Because what we've been talking about the last 
three weeks is that everybody has faith. The question is, what is the object of our faith? Are we the object of our faith? Is some higher power the object of our faith? Uh, what, whatever that may be, we exercise faith all the time. We've talked about that, and I don't need to rehearse that again. But, but through the years, uh, most of us have believed or been exposed to some very interesting worldviews, some concepts of what happens on the other side of our last heartbeat. Um, and, and they're all based, up, based off of this, this model of religion that I showed you guys last week, that every world religion, with the exception of biblical Christianity, teaches that it's incumbent upon man to do his or her best to reach God based on their performance record, which they hope will validate them before God. There's no certainty in that. There's hope. There's keeping your fingers crossed, but there's no certainty in this because how well have I kept the rules? Have I done enough to earn a perfect God's acceptance or have I not? And so tonight is, is something I'm really excited about us thinking through. But how certain are you about your faith position, whatever that may be. And so uh, the fact is, we, we say if we keep the rules, we just keep the rules, God is going to have to let us in and not throw us out. Well, the problem with that is, whatever those rules may be, whether they're the you know, etched in stone Ten Commandments or the Eightfold Path of Enlightenment for the Buddhists or uh, Muslims or whatever it is, if it's formal or just the rules you've made up for yourself, the problem is we don't even keep our own rules, right? You know, you expect people not to text and drive. Do you ever text and drive? Oh, of course not. Not me. I would never do such a thing. All right. So, but the very things that we, we expect others to do or not do, we often find ourselves guilty of the same things. We don't even keep our own rules. I was, Annette and I were in Arlington, Virginia many years ago, and uh, we came upon these pool rules. Now, if you want to go to the Arlington Gateway Hotel on 801 North Glebe Road, Arlington, Virginia. These pool rules will probably still be there. Oh my gosh, it's already shown you. Well, that just about blows the whole thing here. Okay, I hope you didn't read, nobody was reading those, did you? Wow. Okay, so here's the first pool rule. If you've had diarrhea in the past two weeks, please do not use the pool. For what? When I'm shower your child and yourself before entering the pool or after using the toilet. I mean, who doesn't do that? Right? I mean, bathers who are not toilet trained or incontinent adults must wear a swim diaper. <laughs> Scott, is that you? That's. <laughs> and then, of course, they don't expect you to keep these rules, or else the last rule would not be here. Do not drink the pool water. <laughs> so we don't even keep those. I'm going to find out how that actually happened. That was not fair. So we didn't keep our own rules. So last week we looked at the scriptures um, that present challenges to a religious worldview. Uh, we said that the scripture says that all have sinned and come short of that which is acceptable to God. All of our lives we've failed according to the scripture, and we are not acceptable to God based on our own performance record. And we saw that it's, it's, it's really universal, that, that we're even worse than we know. Remember I put up that television monitor for all of us to not just look at what we do, but look at what we think. 
And we may think that because no one sees it, it's okay. Well, according to God, he sees our thoughts. Jesus even said, I tell you so much to the Jewish religious leaders, he said, I tell you this much, if you actually look at a woman to lust after her in your heart, you have already done the deed. Jesus said, if you, if you, if you call your brother a fool, you're guilty of murder. So Jesus was about taking away all the religious loopholes whereby any man could think in and of himself, he could commend himself, she could commend herself to God. And we said, that's not, a, that's not theology, that's meology. It's me creating God in my own image so that he's manageable, so that, so that I, can, I can manage God. And so I have my meology and maybe you have your urology. I'm not... Yeah, you know, you're... you're so anyway, so but we come up upon a way to try to earn the acceptance of God. And, and from these, this comparative religion model, we come up with, I, I'm going to show you at least three examples, two, two examples, a third example, not so much, of the ways in which we think or we hope that God will accept us. Now maybe, I don't know if you guys, obviously everyone went to school and you had teachers that, that graded on a curve. Well, maybe God grades on a curve. I mean, he's not going to flunk the whole class, is he? So you have pass and fail. and So uh, the question is, who sets the curve? Do I set the curve? Well, think about that for a moment. Do you set the curve? Are you going to fail yourself? Are you going to think that your works were just not good enough if you have a validating performance record that you think is better than so-and-so's, maybe not better than the best, but better than most? So I don't know about, you know, basically where I go is like, uh, yes, that would be about where I think I would, I would fall out. I would hope so. But how much security is there in that? How much certainty is that? Imagine if you went to heaven and God says, I'm grading on a curve today. How comfortable would you be based on your efforts? How comfortable would I be based on my efforts that I would pass? Would you be sure? How, how sure would you be? Now, maybe there are scales in heaven. You know, you just scale, right? That if your good works outweigh your bad works and you're off. So, so heaven's scales of goodness. And, you know, there, those, those negative signs, those are your... Those are your bad works. Those are your negative things. Um, so there they are. Well, how comfortable are you feeling right now if those are your good works? You're feeling a little more comfortable now, maybe. How about now? The question is, who defines what's good and what's not good? Well, in my meology, I'm the one that defines what's good and not good. But when I am there in heaven, how much confidence do you think I am having before the God who, if there is such a one, created all things? And says, uh, Frank, it's, I know you lived your whole life like you thought it was on your terms, but it's not on your terms. It's on my terms. Well, maybe, and again, you, you look at this, this model. This, this is a model that I, I actually thought about this. Are my good works going to outweigh my bad works? Because I had no concept of what the Bible had to say. Now, maybe God is a bit capricious. Maybe he just, uh, it's arbitrary. Maybe he just gets kind of bored in heaven. 
I mean, harps all the time, clouds, I mean, forever. I mean, that's just kind of boring. So he comes up with a game show. Comes up with a game show. And the game show is, is a game which, if people come up, well, let's just see here. And the game show is a game show that's watched all over the universe by millions of people. Harps playing hot or not is the name of the game. So the way you play hot or not is, is, is well, first, to play hot or not, you have, you have to be dead. So, uh, so let's, just, let's just see who, anybody, Derek, you want to play hot or not. So here's the way hot or not is played. Okay, so first, Eric, uh, Derek, congratulations, you're dead. All right, so, now, what happens is this. God, you, you will stand, Derek, you can stay seated, but there's this, hum, this incredible roulette rule, uh, wheel where everyone who's ever lived is on that roulette wheel except you. And God will spin the roulette wheel, and wherever it stops... If you're better than the person that it stopped next to, next to the part where it stopped, it will determine whether you are hot or not. Got it? All right. So you just say stop, and we'll, we'll see what, what happens. See whether you're hot or not. So, okay, so here we go. All right. Just, it, we're, God spins the wheel. You can hear the clattering going on, and you just say stop. Two. I, I guess you're okay. I don't know you that well, but I feel a lot more you feel a lot more comfortable now? Okay. That's good. I'm glad you do. Adam, you want to play hot or not? Sure you do. Okay. <laughs> All right. We're rolling the, the roulette wheel. Just say stop. Stop. Two. Right. I think you're all right. I think you're all right. All right, Zach, it's your turn to play hot or not. Just tell us when to stop. Stop. Oh! <laughs> ushers, will the ushers come as escort? Uh. Now, we, <laughs> that's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? Um, but, you know... I, the thought that I could have any certainty based on my own definition of my goodness where I'm making myself the baseline, the benchmark, is fine if I am God. I, I know this is not going to come as a surprise. <laughs> I'm not God. I'm not God. And what the scripture says, whether or not it's true, this is what it, it teaches us that uh, there is no certainty in that. There is no certainty. And the Bible teaches that God wants us to be sure. We're going to talk about that in, in just a minute. But I wanna, just want to just break it to you real quickly here. Um, tonight, remember that chef? That chef was on duty again from, from week two, and uh, he poisoned some of your food. Now, the way you know whether or not your food was poisoned is that you're feeling sleepy. It has nothing to do with me. It's the food. You're, well, let's just say that were true. Right? Let's just say that were true, and suddenly, you know, you collapse onto the, the table, and you then find yourself in the presence of Jesus. 
like, whoa. And, he's, and he would say something, I guess you didn't expect to be here. I told you to not mess around with those people. That's a strange group. Uh, and he says, so now, now think about this with me. I know, I know we've been kind of joking here for a moment, but just think about this. Suddenly you are in front of Jesus, and it's true what you've heard. And he asks you a question. Now think about this. And the question he asks is this. Get ready for the answer. You're the one that has to come up with the answer. Why should I let you into my heaven? You thinking? So what is rolling across around in your brain right now, what you're thinking about is telling you whether or not your worldview, whether or not my worldview is based on my efforts to reach a perfect God or I'm trusting in what the Bible says Jesus did for me since in and of myself I could never reach a perfect God. Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 11, verse 6, but if it, that is salvation, a relationship with God, forgiveness, acceptance, is by grace. Remember last week we defined the word grace. Grace meaning unmerited favor. Receiving something I don't deserve. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. See, it's either a gift or it's works. It's either free or you have to pay for it. It can't be both. And so Paul, we see many places in the scripture, and right here to the Romans, he's saying, if it's by grace, it's by grace. If it's by works, it's by works, but it cannot be both. And so we have a worldview, regardless of whether you're in the backwoods or back jungles of Africa or sitting here tonight, we all have a worldview that is based upon either our own relative goodness or God's objective goodness. That's what the Bible says. May not be true, but that's what the Bible says. So how can we have faith? Page, I think I told you to open to page 24 about 15 minutes ago. How can we have faith? See, the Bible teaches that God, want, God wants us to know for sure. See, this is not just about you or me being interested or not interested. The issue is not whether we're, we're, or not we're interested. God, according to the Scripture, wants you and me to know for sure, with as much certainty as any human being on earth can have, what our standing before him is, and whether heaven is going to be our home the split second after our last heartbeat. And look, if, if, if I could snap my fingers and something would happen tonight, it would be that when each of us leaves here tonight, every one of us leaves here tonight, we would leave here according, looking at the scripture and seeing what the scripture says and says, and, and be able to say to ourselves, according to what the Bible says, I am or I am not a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't know how that affects you right now. Maybe it doesn't affect you at all. Maybe it's affecting you a little bit. Maybe more than it would have four weeks ago. I have no idea. But again, we're seeing what the Scripture has to say as defined by the Bible, leaving here with that certainty. If, if you've opened your book, I just want you to write a little something down in, in your book. Just a sentence which is something that blew my mind when I heard it for the first time. 
and just, you can just write Christianity, and I just write a big C, just it's shorter to write, is first becoming someone before it is doing something. Christianity is about first becoming someone before it's about doing something. So what we're going to see in just a couple of minutes is how God is, as we have a tendency to look at what we do, God, according to the scriptures, looks at who we are. And I think this is going to become very apparent from the scriptures in just a few moments. So, 2 Corinthians, okay, city of Corinth in Greece. This is the second time the Apostle Paul has written to the church there. This is the fifth chapter, 17th verse. And this is a very loose translation just to help in terms of us getting a, a better grasp on it. Paul writes, when someone, pay attention to the words, when someone becomes a Christian, uh, and I want to talk about that, that curse word, Christian, it is to many of us, when someone becomes a Christian, he becomes a brand new person inside, he is not the same anymore, a new life has begun. Now, I'm going to step out a little bit more on a limb right here, but here's the way we think, typically. I'm either Christian, or I'm Jewish, or I'm Muslim, or I'm Hindu, or I'm Buddhist, or I'm agnostic, or atheist, or Zoroastrian, or, or whatever you may want to be. The issue of, of what this says here, when someone becomes a, I'd, I'd rather say this, a Jesus follower, he becomes a brand new person. He's not the same anymore. A new life has begun. It's not about your tradition or your denomination or the way in which you were brought up. I mean, there are Muslims today that still will go to their mosques, not to water down Christianity, but they know if they're going to reach their friends with the gospel of Jesus, they want to be where their friends are. They have renounced the religion of Islam, the tenets of Islam, the theology of Islam, as they are worshiping Jesus, but staying within their familial tradition so that their lives can shine before others. And so many times when you hear this, if I become a Christian, that means I have to, 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 to devoid myself of everything I've believed my whole life. I have to walk away from my family. I have to walk away from all those things. Well, Christianity is really not so much about walking away from your family. It's about walking away from yourself. That was weird, what I just said. That just really was strange. What does it mean, walking away from myself? It's because Jesus says, unless you repent and believe, you'll not become a follower of Jesus. And what does repent mean? Repent means I'm no longer going to embrace this as my life, the things I do, the things I believe, where I find identity. I'm going to embrace what God says he has done for me in Jesus Christ where I can have life and joy and meaning and purpose. I say no to that way of life and I turn to him and say yes to, to him. So when someone becomes a Christian, the, the Bible says we become a brand new person on the inside. So, this is a lot to say here, so I actually put it on the screen so we could see it together. According to the Bible, becoming 
a Christian, becoming a follower of, of Jesus, has nothing to do with joining or being born into a church denomination or a synagogue or a mosque or anything else, signing a membership card, getting our bodies wet in religious ceremony, in a religious ceremony at any age, or attending meetings where Jesus' name is mentioned. Not about us turning over a new leaf, but it is about God, God giving us a new life. Not about making resolutions to change ourselves or hoping to improve ourselves. Becoming a new creation on the inside is what specifically and uniquely defines biblical Christianity. A new life has begun. See, so when someone becomes a Christian, someone becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, he has been given by God a new identity on the inside. So, so we see here that just the Bible teaches this, that everyone that's ever born is a creation of God. Now that kind of threw me as well because a cre I thought we were all children of God. Well, according to the scriptures, because we're born physically, it doesn't mean we are born children of God, but we're born creations of God according to the scripture. Let's look at what let me just not ask you to believe that yourself, but look at what John chapter 1, verse 12 says. Yet to all who received him, to them who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to, there's, there's, there's that word again, to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Do you see all this dealing with new life stuff here? If to as many as receive him, he gave the right to become. You can't become something you already are, right? You can give me that, right? You can't become something you already are. So this has nothing to do with what family you were born into, who's your dad, who's your mom. It doesn't have anything to do with any of that. The question is, have you been born of God? And the way you know whether or not you've been born of God is have you received him? When you receive him, you turn away from your life where you are dependent upon yourself and you turn to him. Remember Mike and I last week, we said, Mike, remember, for those of you who are here, Mike needed this, I paid for it, it's going to save his life. He has to believe that he needs it to even be interested in receiving it. But the gift was extended, but it doesn't do Mike any good until what? He receives it. Well, the Bible says to receive that means that you're turning away from your old life. You're turning away from finding identity and meaning in life that's rebellious to God. And you're turning to Jesus. Doesn't mean you're going to live perfectly, but you become someone you were not and never were until you received Jesus. And so... We go to John chapter 3, this issue about being born again, this thing that really perplexed me. I mean, the, the weird Christians are the born-again Christians. Other Christians are okay. The born-again ones are the ones you have to stay clear of because I just thought those were, those were the Billy Graham ones. Those were the Jimmy Swaggart ones. Those were the ones that you know, just into this thing a little bit too much. But then I came to find out that it wasn't Billy Graham that coined the phrase. It was... This guy named Jesus some 2,000 years ago. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh. Okay? Collins gives birth to Collins. What's your name again? 
Loria gives birth to Loria. Vogel gives birth to Vogel. Bellamy gives birth to Bellamy. But spirit, the spirit, the Holy Spirit gives birth to spirit. Jesus, this is, these are Jesus' words. You should not be surprised at my saying. You must be born again or born from above is what Jesus is saying. He's saying is you don't need a new lifestyle. You need a new life. You don't need a more souped-up version of yourself. You need to be born of the Spirit of God. You need the life of God to come and rescue you. So the Bible teaches that the entire human race, the Bible teaches the entire human race was born of, of Adam. We talked about this last week, that when Adam took of the, partook of the fruit, the Bible says that God said, the day you eat of this, you shall surely die, and that death is not annihilation, but separation. And so all of us, the Bible says, are born into the lineage of Adam. Let me just show you Romans chapter, chapter 5 here. He says, verses 12, 18, 19, Therefore, just as through, just follow me here, through one man, sin, rebellion, entered into the world, and death, separation from God, came through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So then, as through one transgression, or just that's a fancy word for rebellion, or self-centeredness, there resulted condemnation or death to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification, okay, remember last week when we did the judge analogy last week, okay, justification means found just, found not guilty, so before God, the Bible says, so to all, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted not guilty and life to all men, not just forgiveness, but life to all men, new life, for as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one man, one, pardon me, the many will be made righteous. Through one man comes death, and through that man, through the, through the, the eons of time, that death spreads to all men. Let me just give you a little example of what that looks like. So in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, which I can't imagine you in the back can see that. For in Adam, all die. So let's represent in this lovely antique cup here. In Adam, all die. All are separated from God. All right, so let's, let's take a look at this. So... Remember last week we said that the wages of sin is death. Death is hell, is separation from God. Now, um, Ryan, hi. Did I just pick on you a minute ago? Uh, no. no, I didn't. Okay, good. Okay, Adam, let's say that's you. A little thinner than you, maybe, but not much. Um, where would you be, Ryan, if your mom and dad never were? You wouldn't be, would you, if your mom and dad never were? And so where 
would you be if your mom and dad's mom and dad never were? You wouldn't be either, right? And how about your mom and dad's mom and dad, mom and dad, where would you be? Nowhere. So who's your daddy? Adam. So you go through back to, it's not a question of what's, that's not fair. It's not an issue of what's fair. Okay, Mike's dad may die with $10 million and my dad may die with $10,000 in debt. It's not an issue of what's fair. It's what he inherited and what I inherited. So from our dad, and I'm finding out now that I got some genes from my parents that I'm not exactly happy about. I'm not talking about Levi's either. I am talking about some stuff <laughs> that is not fun. So, so in Adam, all die. We are born into a lineage of death. And, it, and you know it because you all told me last week when I asked you how many you keep Ten Commandments, not one hand went up. Not one of us. We all know that we have sinned and come short of that which is acceptable to God. The question is, what are we going to do about it? We can't do anything about it, according to the Bible. But that Jesus came to do something about it. Something that you and I could not do for ourselves. And so he comes to earth. He lives a perfect, sinless life. Now, and, and he dies on a cross. Now, here's an interesting thing. Why? was Jesus, according to the Bible, Jesus was not born of man. Joseph was not his biological father. The Bible says that Mary was confronted by the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit became Jesus' father. Now, is that hard to believe? Of course that's hard to believe. Is that supernatural? Is every totally supernatural? But it tells us that God wasn't just performing some cheap trick. Because if Jesus would have been born of Joseph, guess who's his daddy? Adam. And by virtue of that, he is disqualified from being our Savior because he is born with sin. And so he's born of the Holy Spirit. And so he comes, he lives a sinless life, he dies a perfect death, a, a, a sinless death, and he takes all of your sins and my sins Upon himself, the Bible says, he takes all of our transgressions, everything you and I have ever done wrong, thought wrong, said wrong. And not only does he take those enumerated sins, he takes, the Bible says, me, the transgressor, the rebel, and places me into himself as well. And if by seeing that, and by God's grace, I respond to that, the Bible says that God takes me out of Adam and he places me into Christ. You see, for in Adam all die, in Christ the many shall be made alive. In Christ all, pardon me, in Adam all die, all are dead, plugged into death. In Christ we're plugged, unplugged from death and plugged into life completely, not halfway still in death, halfway still in life. We are totally giving the very life of God. We are born, the Bible says, of God himself. And even though we may still fail and fall and do selfish things, and we will, we are now made perfectly the child of God even though we are not perfect children of God. Did you hear the difference? 
we are made, just like, like Nathan here, my grandson, is perfect in no way whatsoever. But he is perfectly my grandson, though he is not a perfect grandson. See, he's born of Paul, and he's going to get grossed out with this. He's born of Paul and Gwen Loria. We're not going to the details of that, how that happened. But his parents aren't here tonight. <laughs> um, and so he was totally theirs, born of their DNA, at the moment of conception. Well, and he was perfectly theirs. But he's not perfect as theirs. And so when you and I become children of God, we are plugged into God's life and we are perfectly God's, though not yet perfect. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. So what happens? We're taken, I love that. We're taken, I want to do it again. We're taken out of Adam and we're all this, the life in Adam is gone. And now we have one life that's in Christ. So let's go back to the scripture again from Corinthians. If any man, any woman is, is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So if any man is in Adam, he is separated from God. The whole world, the Bible says, is, is, is in Adam. But if any man is in Christ, he becomes a new creature. All the old things are gone. All my rebellion is gone. Past, present, and future is gone, taken upon Jesus himself at the cross. And everything becomes new the way God calls things new. And now, not by what we have done, by what God has done, God has seen, let's just make ourselves this for a minute. We are in Christ. And so when God, according to the Bible, looks at me, he sees me in Christ perfect. And so I stand before God. If I had eaten that poisonous dinner tonight and I stand before Jesus and he says, Frank, why should I let you into my heaven? And I will say to him, based on the scripture, you have no reason to accept me based on any works that I have done but based upon my turning from my old life and trusting the work that Jesus did and surrendering my life to his control, that is the only reason you should accept me. So the scripture is, I think, very clear in telling us that. Okay. So, I mean, so if, if we're in Christ, we're new creations, and, we, and, and we're taken out of Adam, and no one wants to be in Adam's family, do we? Um, that would be Adam shame to be there. I love booze. I really do. Booze turned me on. Thank you, Matt. Uh, and so, so religion basically says... Religion basically says that we have to do things to hopefully be accepted. Every religion in the world, with the exception of Christianity, says you have to follow rules and orders and laws and tenets so that hopefully God will accept you. I would humbly argue there is no certainty in that. 
And maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. I could be completely wrong that, I, that saying that, that that's, that's not the, is, the issue. Maybe that is the issue. But every world religion says that we have to do our best so that hopefully we will be accepted. But the Bible says something completely different than that. The Bible says that when I surrender my life to Jesus Christ, I have, based on what Jesus did, become accepted by God. And in my acceptance by God, I now do. Not based out of fear of being kicked out. I do because I realize how deeply I have been loved and accepted. And that acceptance is not based on what I have done it's exactly the contrary of that. Religion says, if you do, you may be accepted. Christianity says, if you're accepted and you understand that you have been loved that much, you will do. You will, out of gratitude, do. And so we see here, God wants us to know for sure. He does not want us to have any hesitation in knowing. 1 John chapter 5, this is not the gospel of John, this is the first letter of John to the churches, smaller book than the gospel. This is what John writes. He says, he who has the Son, he who has the Son, he's in Christ, oops, I need that, has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Then he says this, these things I have written to you who believe in the Son of God, who've received the gift, who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may hope you have eternal life. Keep your fingers crossed that you have eternal life. Pray that you have eternal life. Go to church enough so that you'll have eternal life. Give away enough money so that you'll have eternal life. Um, now, it's so that you may know you have eternal life. Now, if the Bible is the word of God, and that is an if, but if the Bible is the word of God, and it therefore is the truth, the Bible says, if you have the Son, you have the Son's life. If you do not have the Son, you do not have the Son's life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may. There's not a stronger Greek word than the word that is written there. Know that you have eternal life. Well, what's eternal life? Well, who's eternal? Correct. God is eternal. So if you get eternal life, what kind of life do you get? Same kind of life as God. He gives you his life. And though we are not perfect, he is perfect. And though we are not perfect, he accepts us based on what he did. So page 25, the word of God tells us that God is the initiator. It is he who pursues us. It's just, I've got, there's so many scriptures here tonight I want to share with you. I may have to jump through some of them. Now, let's pay attention to the words. But God does what? God shows his love for us. God displays his love for us. He, God reveals his love for us in that while we were still rebels, while we were still self-centered, while we were still the masters of our fate, the captain of our souls, 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before any of us had a chance to think about cleaning up our act so that we could do our best to get accepted by him. Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, okay, found not guilty by his blood, much more shall we be saved. That's another word for healed. Okay, found innocent and found accepted by him from the wrath of God. Justified by his sacrifice. Saved by him. Saved by him. It's either saved by me or saved by him. Through, saved from the wrath of God by his blood through him. I love this. Ezekiel, this is a, it's, if you're writing the scripture down, it should be Ezekiel 34, not 11. I'm sorry. Look at what God says. 750 years before Jesus shows up on the planet, the prophet Ezekiel writes this. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And watch the, watch the, the pronoun and the verb here. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. It just That word shepherd is such a fatherly word. It is such a word of intimacy. It is a fatherly word. You could say, and I will be the father of my children. I myself will make them lie down. Okay, if you're lying down, what does that mean? That means you're free of fear. You feel protected, guarded, cared for. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. Look, when, when God says, I will seek the lost, that means something. It's really deep here. It means something or someone must be lost. Well, who would that be? Think about that. That was me many years ago. He came and sought me, the lost one. He came to seek me, the straying one, the injured one, the weak one, the one that was off doing his own thing. And then this is what Jesus says in John chapter 10, following that same metaphor as Ezekiel. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give, I give, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. Even on the other side, of, they're, they're living in the dash, on the other side of their last heartbeat, they just go from this life to eternity. They will never perish. Their body will die, but they, because we're more than our bodies, will never perish. And no one, I love this, I hope this is true, I believe this is true, doesn't make it true, but I believe it's true, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. Now, now these, are, these are words that should make me look at this and say, am I in Adam? Am I in Christ? If I'm in Christ, God says I become his child, and no one will snatch me out of his hand. I don't know that anyone is stronger than God, the one who holds all things together, God who's created all things by the word of his mouth, God who says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
We have security if we are in Christ because we're birthed into and joined to and held onto by God's strength, Christ's strength, not our own strength. And so we see here, you know, going a little bit further in page 25, faith means taking God's promises and daring to believe them. See, if I only believe something when I act on it, right? If I, if I need to get to New York in an airplane, then I, I'm going to get on the airplane. If I believe, I won't get thrown off because the plane is overbooked. That's United. <laughs> they're about to be united with a big lawsuit is what they're about to be united with. Okay. I, I'm sorry. I, tra- I, I digress. Okay. Okay. Um, but, but it's what we, if, we, if we believe the plane's going to get us there, we go. Tonight you got in your car. You believed you would get here, right? It's faith. So Annette and I had the opportunity to go to uh, Niagara Falls um, last year. I think it was last year. It was awesome. Finally, Niagara Falls. Well, back in June of like 1830, 1831, I can't remember when it was, a guy by the name of Blondin stretched a tightrope across the rapids of Niagara Falls. And no one who had ever fallen from the rapids in Niagara Falls ever lived. Now, people have fallen from the falls and lived, but the rapids, none have ever survived the rapids unless they had some kind of protective suit on. Well, what, what Blondin did in front of hundreds of people, he, stre- he stretched that tightrope and he walked across that tightrope back and forth. He, he put a, somehow put an oven on the tightrope, cooked an egg, or egg, however you prefer to say it. And, and he, he did amazing things. Uh, he took his manager, he put his manager on his back, went from one side of the falls to the next. Took a, tie, took a, a wheelbarrow. And imagine all of you are there right now. And he said to you, I can take a man or a woman, put him in a wheelbarrow and bring them from one side of the, of the rapids to the next. Now, can you imagine being there right there? And he looks at you. <laughs> and he says, Amy, do you believe me? And Amy said, nothing at all. Like, please ask someone else. Well, let's say, I said, uh, no, I don't believe you. Okay. Well, what he does is he takes that wheelbarrow he puts about 150 pounds of, of rock, stone, in that wheelbarrow, and he takes it from one side of the falls, and he brings it back. And he says, Amy, do you believe me now? And let's say Amy says, I do. And then Blondin says, then get in. Hamana, hamana, hamana. <laughs> See, when do I believe that Blondin can take me from one side of the falls to the next? really believe, not giving mental assent when I get in. See, we can look at, we can look at, at Blondin's, Blondin and be there, and we can be there curious. Hmm, I think that's interesting. I think what you guys are talking about here is kind of interesting. I've never really quite thought about faith like this before. It's always been stuffy and stale and difficult. I just never really thought much about it, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here, and Think about it. And I love the fact that you're here, curious. Pray you'll keep coming, curious. Or maybe, like, like we said a moment ago, 
You, be, you, you say you believe that blinding can take that person, put them in a wheelbarrow, take them from one side of the falls to the next, but you're not getting in. You're convinced he could do it, but you're not getting in. See, and that's where we are, many of us are with, with, that way with Jesus. We've grown up religious. We know about Jesus. We've prayed to Jesus. We've gone to church services where they've been all about Jesus. But this aspect of repenting, this aspect of, of surrendering, this aspect of giving control of my life to him, this aspect of acknowledging that I'm a sinner and I, I need a savior, I don't need a life coach or an example or a trainer. I need somebody to come and completely make me new, not just better. See, I'm convinced. I've never thought about there being any more than just going to church and saying my prayers and trying to be a good person. According to the Bible, that's nice. But according to the Bible, that's not enough. I, I, I would have been the convinced one. But when it came to getting in the wheelbarrow, when it came to surrendering full... See, when you get in the wheelbarrow, you understand 100%. I'm, just, I'm not saying, well, I'll, I'll give you my arm and that my arm can go in the wheelbarrow. I'm putting, I'm, I'm putting 100% of myself into that wheelbarrow, and if he doesn't make it, I'm not making it. So many of us are convinced, and if you're here convinced, thank you for being here. Thank you for continuing to be here convinced. But, and there are many here who are committed. Now, committed simply means I am committed, I commit 100% of myself to Blondin's ability. How much help do you think Blondin wants from me to get me from one side of the falls to the next? Do you think he's looking for any help? Think about halfway he's going to say, you know, I'm getting a little tired now, Frank. Would you mind taking over from here? And no, that's not what's going to happen. And so committed means I have trusted, I have turned, relinquished control of my life into and believed what Jesus Christ did for me, and I surrender to him. I say, take control. I no longer want to be, be in control of my life because I'm not in control of my life. I realize now I never was in control of my life. And so to be committed means I am giving all of myself. I am submitting myself because I've heard God some way calling to me that I need him, and I am committing 100% of myself to a God who has committed 100% of himself to me. It's not my commitment. It's my commitment to his commitment. Does that make sense? No. Okay. We'll come back next week, and I'll, I'll do a much better job of explaining it. <laughs> so, thank you, Bob. Uh, I wasn't finished. I know I woke you with that. Um, so, so, you're curious, convinced, uh, you're committed, you've gotten in the wheelbarrow because you believe, or maybe you're just a, a culinary critic and you just are coming for the food, which just keep coming back for the food. So, so the issue of, of this is, is, is really important for us to see. Um, let me just give you another a quick example. Uh, the moment I met my... Go ahead, Ben. It's fine. You can leave. Uh, the, 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 moment, the moment I uh, met Annette, 
I was, I was done. I was, I tell you, she's been all over me and, but that's, um, it's a lie. I've been all over her. her. Uh, but nonetheless, let's just imagine the day we got married, we're standing there in front of the minister and the minister says to me, Frank, do you take Annette to be your wife? And I say, well, preacher, she's gorgeous. I'll be proud to be seen with her. And he says, well, Frank, uh, that she, is, she is beautiful. We'll, we'll give you that. Uh, I think everybody agrees. But do you take Annette to be your wife? And I said, well, she's a great cook, and I know I will never go hungry. It would just be really good. That will be nice. He says, okay, I'm sure, I'm sure that's true. But Frank, do you take Annette to be your wife? And I say, well, you know, her dad's rich. The day he kicks, we're going to be in pretty good shape. So I'm, I'm, I'm liking this. But the point is this. I can believe all the right things about Annette and never say, I do. We can believe all the right things about Jesus and never say, I do. See, the Bible teaches that 2,000 years ago, Jesus hanged from a cross, and as he died, he basically said, I do. And that I do rings through the, uh, the caverns of time, the canyons of time, directly into this room tonight, and he is saying, I do. He has already said, I do, by what he did. What am I going to do with that? Believe all the right things about him? Good moral teacher, prophet, great guy? Or am I going to say, you are the son of God who came to give his life for me? And tonight, recognizing I have fallen short of what is acceptable to you but seeing that you have come to me anyway so that I may have you and life and forgiveness and acceptance and belonging and purpose and meaning and joy and hope in the dash as well as forever in the line, I say to you, Jesus, I do. There is, if that is the truth, there is no greater news that you will ever hear. So we see it's the, the word of God, the, the work of Jesus. It's Jesus that has done this. And then, well, how do I know if I've done that? I've done that. How do I know? Well, let me tell you, you will know. It may not be fireworks inside of you. I know the day I said I do to Jesus, I just woke up the next morning and I wanted to read the Bible. With some, they're just incredible. Fireworks go off. It's just incredible things that happen. Language changes. You know, your, your language becomes more, much more compressed because a lot of adjectives are no longer a part of your vocabulary. Um, become more aware of what I'm doing right or, or wrong. There's a new love for God, a new love for others. There's a change of attitude, of motivations. Um, and those things are tremendous. Now, what I want to do as we, as we close tonight again, um, 
On page 26 of the book, there's that, there's that little prayer. Again, I, I, there's nothing magical about that prayer. I, I would argue that if the Bible says you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth. To say I do to Jesus means I am turning from my old life and I am turning to a new life. That's what happens in marriage, right? At every marriage, there's a funeral. There's a death. Did you know that? There's a death to singleness and there's a birthing into marriage. A new life has begun. And so by simply saying, Lord, I recognize, I mean, you can just say this to yourself right now. You don't have to have your head bowed or anything like that. What's coming out of your heart? Just say, I realize tonight you want me to know for sure. You want me to be certain about my relationship with you. And I see that I've been trying to be certain about my relationship with you or certain about my relationship with someone somewhere based on my goodness. I turn from that tonight. I, 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 I turn to you. I, I, I stand, as it were, next to you, and I say, I do become my, my husband. You know, or, or be my father. I accept you as my savior. I no longer look to myself to be the savior. Come in and change me from the inside out. See, the Bible says if, if, if we do that, you do that now, do that tonight when you get home, uh, whenever, uh, we become a new creation. We become brand new, totally, 100% accepted by God. All right, well, next week we are going to be in session six. If you're following us in the, um, in the manual, section six, why and how should I read the Bible? So we're going to bring out some more information about the Bible next week. I really hope you'll come back. Please consider bringing a friend with you. It's not too late to bring friends. We'll have copies of the session um, downstairs for you. Um, and uh, I just, again, want to thank you very much. Let's take a quick break and get back to our tables. Thank you all so much for coming. <laughs>